0: are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am joined by Caden Elms, a senior mass communication student at Piedmont University and the host of Rolling Through Life, a podcast advocating for disability awareness and sharing personal stories of himself, his friends, and others. I'm also joined by Dr. David Sells, assistant professor in the Department of Exceptional Childhood Education, who has 14 years experience in P-12 education and in higher ed. Today, we'll be discussing disability awareness and access and more. Thank you for joining me, Caden and David.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thanks for having us. Appreciate that. I, I know I've known you, Caden, through various things for the for a few years now since you've been at school here and working with David, of course, over the past couple of years with the diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives that we've had on campus. and Of course, that's how I work with you, Caden, but I'm really excited to have this conversation and Y'all are going to have it, and I'll just kind of interject. But Lillian Smith was very much you know, aware of the importance of access to education um, for every student, not just black students or white students. She called the Brown v. Board decision every child's Magna Carta because it opened the doors, not just for desegregation within the schools, but also students with disabilities. Right. So she was she was advocating for all of this in the 50s and saying that Brown was a was a way to increase access for everyone. So I just kind of wanted to start with that. We're not really going to talk about Lillian Smith. It's going to be about y'all, but I want to turn it over to you and have this conversation because David, of course, works with exceptional education and with students with disabilities in the classroom. So that's why I had him in here to kind of facilitate this conversation with us. Excellent. Thank, thanks for the kind words now. Warm welcome.
2: I'm looking forward to this conversation. So, Caden, let's let's just start with um, talking about who you are. So, question one, how do you define yourself? Yeah, so
1: I um, have spinal muscular atrophy, and I can go into more of that. Technically, type two, however, that's mostly for insurance purposes now um, at this, you know, at this point in in the journey of SMA overall, cause it used to be, you know, very specific, doctors weren't specifics. Um, and then I actually, a few are gonna get re-diagnosed and they're like almost type two, but kind of type three, but that doesn't really matter type thing. Um, so now I don't even usually specify what type at this point, I just say spinal muscular atrophy. Um, and I use a wheelchair full-time and
2: yeah. Excellent. Thanks for that response. So I'm, I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit and we'll come back. When you when you reference insurance purposes, can you tell me a little bit more about that? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So any medical related thing, whether it be for my disability or not, has to go through my insurance. Um, there, And uh, it's always a long process and I have Georgia Medicaid. So it does you know, every insurance varies, but I was fortunate enough for them to pay for my um my injections that helps my disability not progress. And when I did that, nowhere in the state of Georgia could any doctor or hospital find my um, official diagnosis from when I was two. So I had to get re-diagnosed, and that was in twenty twenty one, I believe. Um, so that like. You know, 18, 19 years later, I was re-diagnosed. And in that time, there's been so much, you know, more research done about SMA. And, But, yeah, so that's where the insurance came in. They, The reason they type it is to see if they're going to approve the medication because the medication is only used for technically all types, but it's most beneficial for type 1 and 2. So if I would have been 3, it would have been harder for my medical team and case managers to and my family access manager to fight for this medicine.
2: Excellent. Thanks for expanding on that. Um, Another question um, that comes up in my mind when we think about that. So, and correct me if I'm wrong. So SMA, you referenced being diagnosed at a very early age. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So how do you feel about having to go through the process of uh, an additional diagnosis because again correct me if I'm wrong SMA is not something that you have and it goes away this is something that will sp- that spans your lifetime correct yes
1: yeah, that's correct so of course I can't speak on my first diagnosis because that was you know two it was four days after I turned to that I was officially diagnosed got the results back so I can't speak on that part however the first time they do it you gotta go through all the a bunch of tests and all that and like go through and then finally get the blood work and do all that this time all i did is they sent a dna kit to my house i spit in a little tube and sent it off and got my results online two weeks later that officially said i had it so I'm, i imagine it's very different than it used to be it was not that easy last time I'm sure but for this time it was it was pretty easy and it gave me like um information I've never known because they didn't know it you know 20 years ago and then I was then they didn't think you know redo it anyway to give me more information so I had a doctor ask me um how many copies of the smn protein I had I was like I don't I don't know and now I can tell you I do what I do have you know things like that so it's it was actually in the long run you know it's aggravating to have to put um that injection process on hold for a couple extra weeks um, in the long run, it was very beneficial because now I know more information and I have a PDF of all my information. I can always pull back up.
0: So, so, so Caden, you mentioned SMA, the different types. What, what exactly is SMA and, and what does it do? How does it affect you?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to like just a little brief thing to keep it simple of like the overall. So people with SMA have insufficient levels of the SMN protein um, which leads to the loss of motor neurons in your spinal cord, and so that means your muscles are going to um, atrophy and weaken over time. Um, so yeah, so there's two SMN genes in your spinal cord. One and there's one and two. Typically, your first one's gone. So the the first one does all the producing all the um, SMN proteins for your body, and The second one plays catch-up to help it out, but it doesn't produce as much. But people with SMA are missing the first one. So that second one, which isn't designed to do all this work, is trying to produce it. So depending on how many um, copies of this um, uh, estimate protein you have depends on how much SMA is going to affect you. And that's where the types come in. so, like, I'm type 2 on the cusp of type 3. So, I believe I have four copies of SMN protein, three or four, I think, maybe three. Um, so, that was a lot of medical things, but it just varies in that way. But, yeah. essentially, your muscles weaken over time.
0: And, and the injections help to slow that process down, right?
1: Yeah. So, there's, an, I would say newer, I think it was either 2014, 2016, this injection was FDA-approved. It's called Spinraza. Um, I can look and see exactly what year that was, but essentially that injection will go, goes directly into my spinal cord and um, it, it is guaranteed to stop your progression, but it has a, or almost hundred percent guaranteed to, but it has a very, very high chance of also strengthening you back up a little bit. And so I get that every four months into my spinal cord
2: and yeah. Thanks for expanding on that. Can you tell me a little bit more on this? We'll, we'll, we'll transition in a, in a moment um, away from some of the initial pieces, but you referenced using a motorized wheelchair. And the way that you're describing SMA, it sounds like it, there's a progressive component to it. Have you always had to utilize support from a uh, motorized chair or wheelchair?
1: So, at a very, very young age, like, around that two and, I guess, one to three age, maybe, I was able to walk while holding on to things, however old when you start walking. I was a little delayed on that developmental milestone, but I was eventually able to hold on to things, Um, and that's when my parents, specifically my mom, realized that she thinks I have SMA because I have another family member that has SMA, and... So you started to see I wasn't make, hitting those milestones like walking and things like that. And so then she was, con- you know, she was um, concerned if I had it or not. And that's where that process started going in. Um, but it, it had then when I was probably four or five, I started using a manual wheelchair. And then quickly by first grade, being in school full time, I quickly transitioned to a power chair. And I've been in a power chair ever since.
0: So, so what was your experience like when was starting school in first grade and and having SMA? So,
1: so kindergarten was fine. Like kindergarten, and first grade, all that was, realistically, realistically all that was fine. Um, the kids didn't. Uh, other kids didn't really know what a wheelchair was so it was that kind of barrier but I did have some friends that just didn't care you know and at a young age kids just don't care about that right. so I had I would say more friends than I've talked about my journey going through school before and it started out fine you know and then I the older you got like you know end up a bunch of school in fifth grade and then into middle school school especially like sixth to eighth grade that's when kids start caring and then get those like clicks in school, and then, like, those people that don't fit in are just essentially outcasted for the rest of the time. And so, that happened kind of in fifth grade, not really. I had some friends there, but sixth grade, all elementary schools combined in the county. And then that's where you get people you don't know, and you didn't grow up with them, so they don't know who you are. And if you're shy, then you're shy, which I was, and they didn't know you well enough because you've never been with them. And then, you gotta get through the rest of your school career until graduation with them, and that's when middle school was hard for me at that point, plus some family things were happening in um, late fifth grade, early sixth grade. Um, my dad diagnosed with cancer, and his mom, my grandma, um, ended up passing away when I was in sixth grade. She was really sick for that time, so it was a very hard time, so I wasn't socializing as much, you know, um, and then high school, and I'm trying to go through it very quickly, but high school, it... Varied. I had some friends, and that's when I found, um, you know, what I want to do with my career and go to college. And so I made friends in that class, uh, which was
0: audio, video. That's when you decided you you wanted to do mass communications, was in high school? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So my teacher there started the program in White County, graduated, went to Piedmont, graduated mass communications degree at Piedmont, and came back and taught the the, um, classes at White County High School. So it was a big, and she came in my senior year. So that's when we really started going and I found what I really liked to do. Um, And then high school, it was just fine. You know, I had a couple people and then college now at Piedmont was really my chance to restart, get a new slate with people. Um, You know, they find I was not shy anymore. They could find out who I really was. Things like that.
0: I was going to say after, since I've known you, I haven't known you to be shy. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so I used to be really bad, and that's when Piedmont was my chance to get a restart. Although COVID didn't help that, yeah. Um, so I really Fair didn't start getting those friends a lot until my junior senior year. So yeah.
0: I mean, it, it was different it was reasons, crazy. but I was shy in middle school and high school too. But
1: yeah, yeah, it was an interesting time. But that that video cl- or that audio video technology film class really helped me branch out. And then um, my parents seen it, family seen it, everybody seen it, and then immediately went to Piedmont. Which also helped me even more. So for sure,
2: nice. That's great. Thank, thanks for sharing the summary of your journey there. <clears throat> and forgive me, I'm gonna go backwards again. Just a moment. Yeah. When you think about, um, like you talked about possible paradigm shift at maybe fifth grade, when you think about um, your own experiences, how how does how did SMA impact your identity?
1: Yeah. So identity in that sense is always interesting for me because. I, of course, always knew I had disability and I lived life with it. You know, I was just, it was just there. Um, however, it didn't take until, and this is shocking to everyone, it didn't take, I mean, it took until um, 2020 when I was stuck at home, you know, doing college online, just sitting here that I really, like, one, took a step back and listened to my body and realized how weak it was getting. So I ignored that and just followed it for so long. And then I'll sit here not doing anything and not going places for almost 70 days without leaving the house. And I'm like, oh, I'm actually getting weaker and I can really feel it and it's happening. And I think COVID lets that as in like, I'm not as active as I usually was. And I was like, this is an issue. And that's when I started the medication injection stuff. But it took until that time to listen to my body. And then also like realize one reason I was so shy is I didn't want to accept that I was quote unquote, different from everyone or had a disability, things like that. And so it took until that point to be like, okay, um, I am disabled. This is going to be my life. Make the best of it. You know, I was kind of advocating at that point, but not really. It was back and forth, kind of doing this and that. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, I need this world to be, you know, accessible and inclusive to not only me, but other people that are disabled. So might as well advocate for it and um, go from there. And that's when I, I fully accepted that as an identity and um, as it as what it is and yeah it's really changed my perspective on things and I'm a lot happier less I was went through depressed depressive state at that moment and that's another thing I really listened to my mental health so it's like a journey multiple journeys all in one that all intertwined and you know but yeah so is sure so is the
0: podcast sense. part of your advocacy I'm assuming that's kind of when you started the podcast too I think right Yeah, so that's
1: when I started rolling through life and the blog post. Um, and that's when, post on social media more, especially when things, different things are happening. When the, um, Social Security Restoration Act was going through, I posted about that. I, you know, post about a little bit about mental health stuff and what I went through, and really just, just started posting on social media, whether it be and TikTok was blowing up at that point, so.
0: What is the yeah. what is the Social Security on um, Restoration Act?
1: So currently the way Social Security for Disability works is kind of not great. So you can't have I don't know the exact numbers, but you can't have like say over, I don't know, maybe two thousand in a savings account where they won't give you money. You can't get married, you can, won't give you money. Um you can't go to work or they won't give you money. Um, I was like, but the thing is, my thought on it is the disability doesn't go away just because you have a job or you're married or we got to save money because we also still have lives, you know, Um, and that's, and I was with the restoration that they were changing, they weren't getting rid of those completely, but they were changing how much money um, you could save when you're single or married or if you have a job, they weren't changing where I believe if you had a job you can still keep it, that type of thing. Um but I don't know the updates on that exactly, but that was what that that was happening in 2020, 2021, I believe.
2: So without going <clears throat> into you know, all the details, because that's there's, there's a lot of information to unpack there. Caden, what are your thoughts on some of the limitations? Um the the parameters of protocols. In reference to, like your own finances, and, th- and when you're thinking about support for your disability, support for um, things like your 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 wheelchair, um, your evaluations that you have to have, how does that how has that impacted you? I think
1: the limitations, whether it be from um, the medical world or the government or anything like that, I think it's very, very outdated first. I feel like that times change, things get more expensive, and trying to have to fight for everything you need, the basic needs, is a lot, and it's not, in my opinion, not good, because if you're trying to live through life with, whether it be a job or um, just living at home and dealing with your disability or having a disability, but still having to fight so hard for your basic needs, I don't like that, but that's very limiting because a lot of people give up because I'm I personally right now am struggling with a government company, a government, I don't know, I guess yeah, a company that um, entity is supposed to be helping me and other people with disabilities and I'm currently fighting that. And it has taken um I don't even know, four months for me to get an appointment after calling it you know, over and over and over and I've just not gotten an appointment. And most people would give up. I gave up trying to deal with them in high school and I'm just now trying to get back in with them um, after they wrong, wrongfully dropped me from their service. So I had to restart that whole um, program. And it really is just a lot of people don't want to fight that much. And I completely understand that. So that's the biggest thing I see personally.
0: And, and is this the process for, for getting a live-in aid? Is that this process?
1: Um. The company helps or the the program helps with a lot of things. That was the original reason I needed to see them. However, I found another company that's going to help with that. I'm just going to be, I have to be approved. And if they don't, it's not even them approving me, it's the, um, uh, another like health, community health, um, government thing. So if they don't accept me, then no company can
0: help me. That's how it works in this sense. Um, which. I was going to ask, so what do you mean, you say basic needs, and that can encompass a lot of things. So so when you say basic needs, what do you mean about basic needs for you?
1: So for me, that would be the wheelchair, my lit Hoyer lift, shower chair, um, used to be a hospital, home hospital bed, I don't use those anymore. Um, and then repairs on your, like my chair and things like that. But the, it just takes so long for insurance to approve it and I actually just had somebody come look at my chair because it's not it's not working properly and he noticed my armrest need to be replaced which is two things in addition to my controller needing a new controller so that's three things I need but my insurance will not cover all three things at the same time so that means my wheelchair company is their I guess the, the department that puts these orders in has, and they did this with a lot of people, apparently has to do one order a day. So like, for example, say I got, I needed it, like he came out today. He could put the controller order in today. They'd wait. Tomorrow they'd run through my left armrest. The next day they'd run through my arm, right armrest. So it's three separate orders. So my insurance will cover it. But if it's just all together, it they won't cover it. So like once a year running new tires, that's six tires. New batteries, that's two batteries. Armrest two seat covers
0: two. So you need six days to get six six wheels. What was that? So could you do like the wheels in one day, or do you need like six days? Like I can order
1: week? a set, I think, but I'm not positive how this goes. So like it really is waiting day after day to order one at a time, type thing. Yeah. Cause and so it took it took them three days to order and they'll all be delivered on the same day. Insurance will, will accept them all on the same day. They have to be in separate orders, and it will take insurance probably a month to approve it. And so my controller's it, messing up. So if it messes up permanently, I'm not coming to school until I get a new
2: one.
0: Yeah, and, and essentially, you're at the whims of the companies. Yes.
2: Yeah. And that that's an, that's an unfortunate reality. Came that I experienced with students that I served um, at the K twelve level. We were very fortunate in the district that I um, served in that. The PT would come out regularly to evaluate. Mm-hmm. PTs, physical therapists, would come out regularly to evaluate students. Um, mobility specialists as well would come out. Um, fantastic staff, uh, great experiences. Except for the dynamic that you're sharing, where it was, it, it felt like there was always um, kind of a hurry-up and wait component.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know, it always made me wonder when we're thinking about you know waiting for approval. Um, you know, how the billing works. This this is an obvious disability in your situation. For a lot of the students that I served, um, some of those students had cerebral palsy. Again, th- those are different. That's different than, than SMA, but I'm talking about obvious physical disabilities. The need isn't going anywhere, but yeah. yet there's a barrier um, when you think about having to navigate the insurance component. Um, and, you know, also... I also think about the logistics. Um, students I served I wonder if this is true for you. If there is a problem with your chair, do you have to have somebody come out and evaluate that? And does that? How does that impact your day?
1: Yeah. So whenever, when it, like, whenever say my controllers been messing up, I called them. Well, I called them. They came in December to deliver new things, and I or or yeah, late December. And then I told him, I was like, hey, my controller's not acting, right. I keep getting an error code, you know. He's like, well, I can't see it, so I can't help you. Next time it does, it, take a picture and call our office. And so that's totally fine. The next day it happened, and so I took a picture of it, and I called the office. They didn't ask for what it said. I just said, I'm having issues with my controller. And I was waiting for a follow-up question. They so I said, okay, on this day, they'll come to your house. They'll let you know at time closer to time. Goodbye. And I said, Okay. That day was January 31st. So that was over a month of waiting for him to come to my house. Then he gets there. I show him the picture. Then he has to call their tech... At like the electronics department. Tech department, whatever. To ask him what it means. They tell him. He said, okay, I'll put the order in. And then now it's just waiting for insurance to... I would say like... um, Probably like two, three weeks for insurance to approve it. And another... Two or three weeks to have it scheduled to bring into my house. Um, and the only thing he did was look at my controller or to look at the picture of my phone. And then he had to call and ask what it was because he's not, he's an electronics, which that's not on him. Like, you know, that's just, I mean, that's just what his job is to call, you know. But they had to come all the way at their to drive to the house, and I missed my whole day of school and everything else for them to come out there when I, when they could have asked me follow up questions that first phone call i been done a month ago, essentially. Sure. Um,
2: it almost sounds like you're having to prove that you have a problem. You're having to prove that you still have a disability. Does it feel like that on your side?
1: Yeah. My whole world as a disabled individual is still proving I have a disability, whether it be med, like in the medical field or in my personal life or, you know, in school or just anywhere in my life, I feel like I'm all constantly proving my disability and proving myself um, as to who I am.
2: So, not only do you have the mobility challenges associated with SMA, but you also are routinely put into a position where you have to prove that this is still a part of your life. Is that accurate?
1: Yes. Whether it be in a
0: societal standpoint or a medical standpoint. So, one thing you mentioned there as you were talking was having to miss school to actually get this fixed. Can can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what it takes for you to even get to school?
1: Yeah, so that would so just a brief like overview of my day. That is, um my parents helped me get out of bed, gave me a dress, help me use the restroom, get me ready for the day, drive me from my house 20, 20 around twenty minutes, just Piedmont, and then drop me off. And we'll, depending on the day, she, my mom it's my mom takes me. Um, depending on the day, she'll either take the van back home or do a car switch with my friends. And I'll spend the day at Piedmont. And if I'm it's a long day, my mom has to drive back over to help me use the restroom again. But usually, I'm pretty good about not needing that. I've trained my body, whether good or bad, to do that. And um, then at the end of the day, she'll either come pick me up. Take me back home, or one of my friends takes me home and get, grabs a car from my house. Hang on one
0: second. So, so how long does that process take? You said it's a twenty-minute drive. So, how long does the process take? Because even getting in out of the van, I know, isn't just you stamp you pull, pulling yourself up and getting in. I mean, it, it's another process with it. And please tell us the name of your van too. Yeah, sorry about that.
1: Yeah, so first, my van is a huge van, Ford van. It is red, so it is Clifford the Big Red Van. Um, My professor named it my freshman year, and it has stuck to the point where for Trunk or Treat at Piedmont, we had it like Clifford. We had huge ears, the eyes, the nose, everything, it was Clifford. And we all dressed up as other dogs in the show. But aside from that, yeah, so... Getting ready takes a while because not only does my parents, whoever is taking me or whatever, has to get ready, they also have to get me ready. Um, so I think just for me getting ready, it probably takes twenty minutes, maybe thirty, getting in and out of bed or getting out of the bed, getting dressed, using the restroom, doing all the you know morning routine stuff, and then once I get ready, then we leave. I would say the van takes at least five minutes to get in on a. In the winter, it takes forever because the lift is very, very cold. Um, and that is if the lift is working because it is an older vehicle. It's as old as I am. Um, it is a 20-year-old van, 21-year-old van. So if something's not going wrong, then it takes about between five to ten minutes to get in the van, get hooked. I have four individual hooks plus a shoulder strap. And then I have to get set so I don't fall over and then go to campus. Got to go slow on bumps and turns so I don't fall over, get hurt, whatever potholes, which you know around here is really bad. Um all over North Georgia, it can be pretty bad. And then um unloading takes five minutes easier to get down. And that's that. But doing that every time is very, you know it does build up.
0: It's a lot. Yeah can the we have a thing to- that I was gonna say the other thing that, that just caught me and it's obvious, but you talk about your parents getting you up, your parents taking you to school and impact may not be the right word, but what kind of, and it's the only word I can think of right now, what kind of impact does all of this have? Because it because it doesn't just affect you with with your SMA. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is a familial and community impact of people coming together to to assist as well. So can you talk about that a little bit and kind of how they um, react? May be the right word, but but can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so I think that um, I couldn't do it without the community around me and the family around me for sure, especially when like mom and dad has have, to have a Like my dad had cancer, um, my mom has had had surgeries in the past. That definitely is a big family thing of like my aunt staying, or if my parents want to go on their anniversary or want to go on vacation, that's my aunts or my brothers coming and taking turns and alternating, staying with me at night, helping me use the restroom, things like that. So it really is. A big, huge, like, family thing. I can always count on them. But, like, yeah, so my dad works. They own their, My parents own their own business, but my um, a construction business. So my mom does, like, the secretary-type work from home uh, whenever that needs to be done. But my dad and two out of three of my brothers, sometimes all three of them work for my dad. So they're gone. Um, during, like, K through 12, I could – mom would work, whether she was substituting as a teacher in Cleveland or in Wyand County, Habersham, and Raven County, these those three counties where she worked, or she worked for a while in lunchrooms in Habersham. She like went around, she bounced around from different schools over the years, all in Habersham, but then going to college. Um, I mean, there's other reasons she quit that job and um, quit doing that, but one, it worked out because during college, my schedule's different, it's not getting up at Five forty-five 45 in the morning getting on a school bus it's like getting up at seven thirty-eight or 9 in my case this morning almost and um and then getting me dressed and taking me and bring the van back and you know all the things so it takes a lot longer so realistically it's it'd be harder for her to have a job so she doesn't work right now in a typical job setting she has the secretary work whenever she needs to from home so that that's a big effect on her and my parents because we I have an award ceremony coming up in Augusta so my dad's fortunate enough to take off next Friday and drive us down there and stay overnight down there so it worked out in that sense but it was very um very much rely on other family members and them so I can stay at my family member's house if I need to if there was emergency or just my parents are gone I have aunts and brothers and uncles and cousins that help me out.
2: Thank, thanks for expanding on that. I, I'm I'm kind of stuck on one piece and, and thinking about your daily routine. You talked about restroom use. We're not going to get into the details of that, but you, I think you said you've trained your body in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've had to adapt to society, or is society adapting to you? Because that very much sounds like. I want to insert my bias, but so go ahead. Yeah. um, A little bit of both.
1: So um, in high school, they had, or all growing, you know, so elementary, middle school, the nurse that we had a nurse in the school, it was, uh, they would help me use the restroom. Um, Also, a paraprofessional was usually there to help me out. Um, We had backup people in case one was out, wasn't stranded, you know. Um, at high school we didn't have a nurse. So that was like something i would talk about. And in the being we had two to three paraprofessionals that were help able to help me use the restroom. Um, and so that varied in people as well. So every year it was it always looked like I was training training any person to help me use the restroom, which is very personal. Like that is the as personal very. as you can get with someone. And I had five six people in the in the school that could take me to the restroom and that it it was a lot it took me you, know, you know especially in high school having that many people they would do it, it was just a lot um but it was helpful because sometimes they would you know a lot of them were coaches so they would be gone on trips and they or sick or whatever just very um but yeah so that i i would say they adapted to me however um in my i would say more i don't know in public areas i guess um that i don't have someone to help me use the restroom i adapt to society because i don't have someone to help me or the restrooms aren't accessible um and yeah so if it's not accessible or i just don't have someone then i have to wait um so yeah
2: let's let's just call. Let's just pause there for a moment, and, and for those who are listening, um, let's just think think about the implications there. If you, if you want to travel to a store, if you want to attend school, having to stop and think about can you can you uh, complete a basic human need?
0: Mm-hmm. Let's think
2: about what a non-disabled individual goes through in that situation. Typically, we wake up, we use the restroom. There's probably not a lot of thought that goes into that. That's probably you know a couple of minutes of the day. Caden, from what you're describing, it sounds like that 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 just sounds very stressful to have to think about a basic human need being met. Will I be able to use the restroom? Am I going to have to uh, wait to use the restroom? Can I attend this uh, you know this event based off of restroom accessibility? Those are those are real challenges that may sound, I guess, kind of minor as as you're describing it because you're so used to that life. But I think that's just that's again something to point out to society and the individuals who do not have a disability, that's, that's a very simple basic need that we all maybe take for granted. And And that, that that could be a significant part of your day.
0: I was going to say along, along with that too, one thing that stuck out to me, Caden, is you talked about the people in high school helping you. And that's mm -hmm. a very, not just the fact that it's a personal act that you're doing and a private act that you're doing, but that's also a time when you're actually going through puberty and finding yourself, I mean, yeah. there's a lot going on there, I think. Yeah, it's very much,
1: <laughs> um, well, to go back to what David was saying, um, yeah, so my day does definitely, like, revolve around, or the, the events to go to, whatever, you know, very much revolves around, when is one of my parents going to take me, Where? how long will I be gone, what am I, how much water am I going to drink, how much coffee am I going to drink, am I going to drink anything, am I going to do anything like that, um, and, which can lead to me being dehydrated I've had kidney issues I've had have kidney stones actually during covid in 2020 I had my left kidney removed um so like very much um revolves around you know what am i going to do that day how what am i going to drink when i'm gonna what am i going home um you know so things like that but then going back So was to it like, accurate
2: Sorry go ahead go ahead no I'm terrible at interrupting it, it just it <clears throat> you're hitting on so many points that I'm passionate about it it, it makes me think about if if and I, I would never say I know how you feel because I don't have your disability. but if I were to try to put myself into your headspace, it's just it's it's earth shattering to think about waking up and asking questions like, is society going to be able to support me today?
0: yeah that's a
2: question that Matthew and I don't don't think about I mean, yeah. Not to speak for Matthew, but when we're talking about going to, let's say, if we're going to a sporting event, it's uh-huh. not, is there a restroom? It may be, you know, which restroom do I want to use? The one that's on this side of the event or the other side of the event? That's it, it, Again, I want to just make that point for the listeners to understand how significant something is a, is a very basic human um, need, how how challenging that can be somebody in your situation and to me i don't want to speak for you but that just seems like it would create a lot of extra stress that others don't have to deal with and that's yeah, yeah. to me that's an equality issue
1: that's definitely like part of me like before i go to any concert or event is calling hey is it not bathroom because i'm my parents don't go with me to concerts usually my friends so i just don't drink a lot when i go down to athens or whatever or whatever i'm drinking and that's I made that mistake where I, me and some friends went down to Athens for an event and it was completely inaccessible. It was in a basement of a building and I couldn't get in. So we drove an hour over an hour away and went through the terrible Athens traffic on a Friday night during a home game, football game um, for no reason. It was the worst. I don't know why we did it. It was, it was pointless, but that, that really like, why didn't I call ahead, but I shouldn't have to, but unfortunately I do. But then going back to what you said, um, um it's it's very much like very I gotta put a lot of trust in people going back to the, like the high school situation you gotta put a lot of trust in people um and that, that most people don't have to and it's very much um I don't know it's, it was very interesting I was used to it by the time I got to high school but it's still very much um you gotta trust who you're gonna have help you use the restroom and I was, of course, fortunate to have people that I knew beforehand from middle school that ended up going to my high school, or I just knew them because it's a small town, or um, they're just really nice people and was known in the community, whatever. So I was okay and comfortable with that situation, but like they weren't, they didn't sign up for that whenever they took on a position as a paraprofessional. That was not in their um, like contract, I'm sure, at all. Um, So it was really like, trusting each other relying on each other um things like that and um I was fortunate enough that he he understood the kidney stone situation and that kind of stuff and um so i didn't have to worry too much but it is something that was always in the back of my mind like you know this is very vulnerable what if you know it's a different person what if this happens or this happens or this is said or this you know all that stuff you just think about when you start something new and that's why i don't like starting something new i think it's cuz most things that did start that were something different or new were very vulnerable things, whether it be medical or basic
2: needs like that. Do you feel, do you feel like you use the word vulnerable? Do you feel like um, that was a part of the situation because you had to ask those questions regarding, is this experience going to be, is it going to accommodate me or am I going to have to accommodate it?
1: I, I mean, I just say for the most part, like, I broke down i have an article on this I broke down um trust in the two categories i always said everyday trust versus vulnerable trust and the everyday trust I gave examples of if i'm at the grocery store and I drop my phone or I need help grabbing something off a shelf i'm in, or for example I drop my wallet let's just say drop my phone and wallet i gotta trust people strangers to pick that up and hand it to me without stealing it. And then that's just little everyday trust that people, you know, you trust people not to steal something from you. But the vulnerable trust is when, you know, using the restroom or, you know, doing anything medical needs or picking me up or transferring me. That's where that vulnerable trust comes in because I don't have the opportunity to get to know someone before um, get hit that close to home and, you know, help me use the restroom or do whatever. So it really is like, you know, within, let's say, the, for a couple of the paraprofessionals, met them, taught them for five minutes. Next thing you know, they're learning how to take them to the restroom. So within five minutes, we've hit a whole new level of um,
0: close and vulnerability for sure. So, so you're talking about the trust. I, I kind of want to end on this because one thing you mentioned is the quintessential college experience of going to concerts, and you talked about going to Athens. I mean, I'm thinking about concerts. I went to as a college student. I'm like, we drove two or three hours. Sometimes we didn't go to the show. Sometimes we did. I mean, it's part of that experience. I do want to know what band you were going to see, but we can talk about that later. But <laughs> I I just want to know wh- what do you do to entertain yourself as a college student, just as a person for fun, what do you enjoy doing and what do you enjoy doing with your friends and your community?
1: Yeah. So I, I love a good concert. I've, I haven't really. I've been to a couple concerts, like small, like really, like country concerts, and up in Hawasi, you know, because um that's our family land up there, and like the music hall is named after family members, so it has a lot of history with it, and something my parents or family go to. But I also like bigger concerts, things like that. Um, so that's a big one. Um, also the 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 band was the Rex, one of my favorite bands, is in the Forty Watt Club of Athens, you know. Anyway, um, but um. I like for me and my friends, a lot of it's just driving around and listening to music in Clifford and um, you know, going out to eat or the movies sometimes or we go like every other Saturday usually to a coffee shop, a local coffee shop in Cleveland. They have a little like a, they call it the Commons and it's like a little cafe area to do your homework and study or have a meeting. Um we go there a lot for sure. Um what else do we like to do? I don't know. A lot of us are just hanging out, watching a movie in one of of their dorms or whatever. Um, But it really does. It's the simple things. But even that, the simple things, I have to realize how late am I going to be there? You know, what, how, what, if we're going out to eat, is it something I can eat easily without getting choked? Or, which my friends know, if I get choked, what to do, things like that. But it's, you know, what's easy is how weak am I? What am I going to eat? I can't pick this up but I can this or um, I can't drink too much water or a tea or chocolate milk because we have popcorn chocolate milk um, because I'll use the restroom before I get home and um, hoping an emergency doesn't happen where I get stuck and can't get home because I can't use a restroom because that has happened on two occasions. This um, one last semester, one this semester, the first one, we were on my way home at like 10 p.m. and there was a huge wreck and the road was blocked for at least an hour. Um it was blocked longer than that, but my uncle was also there. So like in his own car. So he was able to because my friend didn't feel comfortable driving or turning around. He hopped in and moved us out of the way for us and got us around it. But that was another situation where we was, we were stuck there for an extra hour we weren't planning on. Um another case was um, my parents had an emergency with uh, another family member they had to go deal with at midnight and I was headed home from Piedmont and they weren't, they weren't home when I got home I had to use the restroom really bad because I was at Piedmont from nine thirty eight AM, 10 AM something like that until close to midnight without using the restroom and I really had to go, but they weren't home. So I had to wait on them to get home and deal with that. So yeah, it really is fun, but also in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of what's the day look like
0: in that sense. Thank thank you for that. I mean yes, thank it's you. It's, a, it's a lot. Um is there anything that, that y'all would like to wrap up with as we kind of conclude here? Or or let me ask this. What what would you like to leave people with, Caden, as we wrap up? Hmm. I always
1: get this question. I never know how to quite answer it. There's always so much and it's hard to just narrow it down. Um,
0: it's, the, it's the way you have to end the podcast. You have to leave. I know yeah.
1: every something. podcast, but somehow I never figured it out. Should I have a, should I have a written one by this time. Um, it It's really just like, don't. Hmm. If someone that's disabled, like needs help, of course, help them. But also like if they can't do something and you ask them to do something, don't get mad if they can't. So thinking in the back of their mind how they're dealing with the day, whether it be a bathroom situation, accessibility situation, transportation, um, how tired they are. Because if you have a disability or a chronic illness, you do get fatigued faster. And so they might have to cancel plans. You can't be mad at that. Um, I've had to do that before. So it really is um, that kind of stuff. Like just gives them some grace in the sense that things might not go
2: like they always are planned to do. And I'd like to add just a little bit to that, Caden, to those who are listening, um, just one mindset to embrace as you interact act with individuals such as Caden, um, individuals who utilize wheelchair support um, to, for mobility reasons, presume competence, always presume competence, never assume that someone who has a mobility issue, someone who uses a wheelchair for um, transitions, has any type of cogn- cognitive impairment, or intellectual disability. That is not the case specifically as we're talking with Caden here. Um, so again, presume competence, and just pause for a moment and think about how you can support that individual. Don't just assume that they, they can't do something and do everything for them. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like that's that's an issue that came up a lot um, in my experience, Caden. How do you oh, feel yeah. about that?
1: Hey, I was going to add on to that. You made me think of something. I've done a list of things on social media and it's a couple of them are um you can always ask somebody that's disabled if they need help but if they say no respect that don't do it for them anybody like, oh but i want to help you don't do that you know keep that barrier um another one is just little ones don't lean on a wheelchair don't like get down their level if they have someone if it's um for example if they're non maybe or anything like that if um if they have someone speaking for them still speak to the person not their aide or caregiver yes. or whatever it may be that that leaves them out of the out of the situation out of the conversation talk to that person directly and then if need be that caregiver or aide or whoever um or teacher whatever it may be will communicate with for them help them assist them in communicating but always talk to the person not the aid in that situation
2: That's great. And it really makes me think about also person first language. I know, Matthew, we would need to wrap up. Sorry. Last point I'll make and and think about person first language. uh, I want to make it very clear that we're talking to Caden who has SMA. We're not talking to an an SMA person. In other words, labels don't define individuals. Labels help us define supports that are necessary to help the individual. So we always put the individual first because um, we we want to see humans as humans first. And keep that at, at the forefront. So we're talking about Caden, who also has SMA versus mm-hmm. um, what might have the negative connotation would be putting the disability first. So yeah. leave with those two things. Um, I mean, my request at this point would be that maybe we have a follow up conversation there. I'm long winded. There are a lot of other there are a lot of other points that I would like to get into. So um, if you are open to that, I'd love to come together again and continue our
0: dialogue. Oh, well, for sure.
1: Anytime there's so much that works for me
0: <laughs> so so thank you for joining us today and we look forward to that next conversation so thank you Caden and David thank you so much thank you thank you as well Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media, or get in touch with us at LESCenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu/les.